Good morning. Ties that bind can connect us to one another and can constrict us from connecting with one another and connecting with God. In this series, we're doing some character studies, getting to know some biblical characters in order to identify emotional connections that moved them toward God or drew them away from him. These bonds are especially provocative when you consider the person of Judas, which you're going to look at Peter next week. We're going to look at Judas this week. I want you to consider Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been has spent the better part of three years with his disciples. We've all had spiritual guides, some better than others, and the disciples had Jesus Christ. And the fact that that Judas could resist Jesus' influence is startling. And in some senses, unnerving. And Judas had Jesus Christ for three years. His ability to resist that influence is provocative. Um, What made Jesus God-proof? And is it contagious? Let's investigate scenes of his life in order to better understand how such a thing could come to be. What we'll find is this narrow-angle lens, narrow-angle depth, but as we put on a different Lens will look at wide-angle life. Let's look at narrow-angle. Judas' defects of character are exposed in the Bible, what it says in John 12. Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. There's there's the kind of perfume that you want, isn't it? I just bought bought a nice bottle of nard. (laughs) Nice nice name for a perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was Put in it. We know that Judas dealt with greed and hypocrisy. He not only greed, he was a thief. Says as keeper of the money bag, he was the treasurer. He used to help himself to what was put in it. But he wasn't just a thief; he was a hypocrite, and he postured himself as if he cared about something that he really didn't care about. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Right? It goes on to say he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. But because that, it, it diminished what he could reach in and, and help himself to. I think we can say money certainly is something that can stand in the way of God, cause us to be resistant to spiritual influence. Um, it is godlike in that it makes promises. And in that sense, money is extremely seductive. It makes godlike promises. It promises that if you have enough of it, you will be protected and provided for, and all of us have to deal with it. Money is extremely seductive, and Judas had a problem with money worship, and eventually it was money, along with some other things that tipped the scales, so that he was willing to betray 
Jesus shortly after the incident with the perfume, Judas went to the chief priests. You read in Matthew 26, verse 14 through 16, it's in your worship folder. Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. There's something here, 30 silver coins was the compensation price for a slave. It's like somebody being wanted dead or alive and having a very low bounty. So it's an insult in a sense uh, to Jesus. It's the pittance to pay for a person again. Um, what they had to do, it wasn't easy to to be able to get your hands on Jesus if you were a chief priest or a Pharisee at the time because he was immensely popular. And those in charge drew their ability to stay in charge because they carried the favor of the people. They could not lay hands on Jesus while people were around. Therefore, they needed to find a time when he wasn't with everyone, which there weren't very many of those. If you follow the Gospels, every time Jesus goes anywhere, there's a crowd. And it's Judas that arranges a time when Jesus would be isolated. And um, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in Matthew 26, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. It's entirely likely that Judas underestimated the danger that he was embroiling Jesus in. He wasn't expecting such extreme punishment, and would you agree with me? He certainly wasn't expecting it so soon. To turn him in one day, and the next day, He's on his way to die. Judas wasn't expecting that. And as things transpired, we get to see some of the tension that existed within Judas, the remorse, the up and the down of it in Matthew 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, I think he was expecting it this soon, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. For I have betrayed innocent blood. Hmm. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away, hanged himself. Ties that bind. Judas struggled with his betrayal. I don't think this was isolated to the experience with the perfume. It's more re reasonable to assume that Jesus' tension, Judas' tension, which Jesus had been simmering all along, he wanted to be devoted to Jesus at some level. However, there were pockets of resistance to Jesus' influence, and he couldn't quite bring those into balance. He wasn't fully convinced, and belief stood alongside disbelief. Why? 
If we do a spiritual CSI, crime scene investigation, it seems like there's two different accounts of what happened to Judas. He's hanged, and I think it's Acts that indicates that he fell headlong and his intestines came out and he was gutted on the ground. Um, maybe some say that he was hanged, the branch broke, and that's when he fell. We don't know. But as we come to this place where there is a body, a corpse, we try to find the answers for this. What happened to this guy? Money? Yeah, there's character issues for sure. I think there's some culture issues as well. I want to show you a, 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 I want to show you something. See if something jumps out at you, okay? Anything jump out at you there? See the top 11? Andrew, Bartholomew, James, James, John, Jude, Matthew, Peter, Philip, Simon, and Thomas. Those are 11 of the 12 disciples. They're from the north. And then there's Judas Iscariot. They think Judas Iscariot is Judas Ish-Karioth. Ish is man. Karioth is... Karioth is right about there. Judas Ish-Karioth. Judas is the man from Karioth. And Judas is from the southern part of Israel. And the rest of them are from the north, from the Galilee from Galilee of the Gentiles. I'll give you a little history of the north and south of Israel. It was a divided kingdom after Solomon. Again, the, the kingdom of the nation of Israel split into halves. The more populous in the north, ten tribes, the least populous, but the most spiritually significant with Jerusalem was in the south. They went into two captivities, but these captivities were very different. The northern kingdom went into captivity to the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C. That's the northern part. The southern part followed them into captivity a couple hundred years later in the 6th century B.C. The Assyrians, who took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, when they conquered people, they were like the Borg. See the Borg in Star Trek? Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And all the Borg looked alike. They, they're kind of a combination of man and machine. And so when you were conquered by the Borg, everybody looked like them. They assimilated you into their culture. And they removed your culture in doing so. That's what the Assyrians did. When they conquered a people, they erased the cultural fingerprints of those people. Let me read what happened. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. Here's the northern kingdom, and that's what the king of Assyria did. He imported all kinds of people into the north, people from all different kinds of countries to resettle this place so to remove the Jewish fingerprint from it. Uh, go on. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So God sent lions among them and killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported, resettled in the towns of Samaria, do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off. Because the people do not know what he requires. That's what they thought. 
we're getting eaten by lions. It's because we're not worshiping the local deity. So you need to teach us how to do that because we really don't like being lion food. And so then the king of Israel, the king of Assyria, he uh, gives this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. That's what happened to the north. All kinds of people moved in. The worship of God moved out. People worshipped all kinds of stuff. The Babylonians, they were the ones who conquered the southern nation, the southern part of Israel, which is Judah. And they had a different way of dealing with things. What they did, they wanted not to eradicate culture, but they wanted to teach Babylonian culture to these conquered people. So what the Babylonians did, they said, give us your best and your brightest. We want to bring them to Babylon. We want to teach them about Babylonian law, Babylonian customs. And then they will go, and then they will be our spokespersons to their people. So they had the best and the brightest go there, among whom were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, among others. And they brought them to Babylon, taught them about Babylonian culture. That's the way Babylon dealt with the south. When the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, they were even more liberal with the people they conquered. If the Assyrians were the worst, and they were, and the Babylonians were moderate, the Persians, what they wanted to do, they wanted to support the the cultivation of culture. They wanted to allow the people they dominated to have their own culture. So what the Persians did, they opened the coffers to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They not only moved people out of there, they moved Jews back there. They said, here, here's some money. Go rebuild the temple. We want you to have your national identity. Um, I think you can imagine then the history of the north and the south. Can you imagine that these would be two very different cultures? Very different cultures. In the north, centuries of enculturation had relaxed the religious ties that bound Jews to the law of Moses. They had all kinds of teachers that didn't understand that. They learned all different kinds of religious beliefs. And so they weren't pure in their belief. And 100, 200, 600, 800 years passed. And they had been used to living in a religious melting pot in the north. The south was a different story. That's where Judas Iscariot was from. There was no relaxation of religious obligations. The influence of faith and family was intact in the south, and Judas lived ten miles away from the capital in Jerusalem. Not only so, but in the south, as in the north, but it was more of a, it was, the, the south was, if you want to get the way it felt, it probably felt like an Islamic state, because there was no separation between church and state. None. So, the sacred leaders had charge of the police. So if you did not do 
what the law of Moses indicated that you should do. It didn't just go to church, it went to the police. And you were punished because there was no separation between the demands of religion and the demands of government. It was exactly the same. So I think what we can understand then is that um, it was difficult to believe in Jesus in the South. Do you agree? That makes sense. In the North, they had been stretched by years of enculturation, and they had some room to be able to shift from the Judaism that they knew. The South was not the same situation. Do we know if some Southern Jews believed, like Judas? Yeah, some believed. Here's what Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. This is in John 8. It's not in your text. Let me just read it. These were Jews from the South. Jesus had done a miracle. And they said, boy, we are really impressed. And we believe that you're God. And this is what Jesus said to them. I think understanding that their ability to stretch and do what he said. eh. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, if you continue to grasp my teaching, then you are really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What he's telling them is that you can't, just because of making a decision to believe, erase centuries of religious indoctrination. You just can't do it. There wasn't a from that preceded the to. Do you understand that? Sometimes you need a from to pull you away from things so that you could have a to. And that's what people in the north had. There was enough of a from to allow a to. In the south, it wasn't the same thing. The bonds of faith and family were very strong in the south. I've told you, I I have different images in my mind because the University of Pennsylvania, where I went to school, was 60% Jewish. And I saw what happened when individuals in the 20th century went from their religion of Judaism into Christianity. It was not pretty. Back that up millennia, and the police would have been on their case. It was very difficult to believe in the South. Judas wasn't able to break free from the pull of families and Pharisees, and those two worked together. He was caught between belief and unbelief, and he ended his life in the field of blood. That would appear to be the end of the story. But before we leave that narrow-angle death and look at the wide-angle life, I think we see a couple of things. Why? What happened to Judas? Character? I think so. Culture? Definitely. Some of you understand what that's like. You came to Christianity from a form of Christianity that's not the one that you now inhabit. And you might have walked away from your family. Uh, You probably didn't walk away from a Jewish family, but from a family that believed differently than you now believe. And you've experienced the sense of ostracism that comes from that. What church are you going to? And what exactly do they believe? And so your religious affiliation, some of you understand the tension of that. And it, for some of you, you can look, it created problems along the way. Multiply that times a hundred. And you have Israel in the first century. Was that an impediment 
in the belief of Judas Iscariot, his ability to come to Jesus? You think that that made a difference? Absolutely it did. And that's why Jesus knew that Judas was the one who would betray him. Jesus understood the binds that tied up Judas. But again, there were character issues. But that doesn't tell the whole story. There were cultural issues. We've got to put that in the mix. My sense is, not many Jews from the South believe. That's pretty unfair, isn't it? What happened? What ends up happening? We see narrow-angle death, and now we're looking at this field of blood where Judas is buried. And we see narrow angle. We focus on that individual, and we see what happens. And that is tragic. Take off a narrow-angle lens. Put on a wide-angle lens, and you start to see some things. Chief Priest said, it's against the law to put this 30 pieces of silver into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners, Gentiles. So there's a place where Gentiles, albeit they can die there, a place for Gentiles to be buried within the realms of Israel. You know what you find with God oftentimes? There's a thread that runs throughout the Bible. When somebody is exposed to danger, somebody who was previously excluded now becomes included. That seems to be what God does. In fact, Jesus said, if a seed remains alone, it remains by itself, but if a seed is planted, it gives birth to many seeds. And he's talking about You know what happens when the seed dies. You put it in the ground, the shell dies, and something, life comes out. When you find a place where there is desolation, what ends up happening with God? The blood that goes into the ground supports the birth of life. So this potter's field became a burial place for foreigners. I think it speaks of the fact that through, I think we'll find this, through the plight, of southern Jews, Jews in general, southern Jews in particular, guess what kind of people end up having an opportunity to find the road to paradise? Gentiles. Look what it says. It's a thread. It says Romans 11. I have a, there's an article that I'm not going to read. You can read it perhaps on your own, but it talks about this passage. Uh, Let me just read the text, Romans 11. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Paul is writing this. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God has bound all men over to disobedience. 
so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. What this verse indicates, it wasn't God's will for most Jews to embrace Christ as Messiah, right? A hardening, in part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. A hardening is not God allowing something, it's God causing it. He caused a hardening to exist so that not only they would not believe, but they could not believe. Does that describe Judas? I think it probably does. But it definitely describes most people in the South who couldn't break free from the nature of that religious indoctrination, and Jesus understood that that was the case. Was this a problem? Was it a mistake? Did God zig when Israel zagged? No, it was intended. That's the mystery, Paul says, a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so I've explained this before. Here's what it's like. You know, you see there's so much construction. Is this driving you crazy? Holy smokes. Everywhere you try to go from here to there, you can't get there anymore. I wanted to get to the other side of town. I had to go to Omaha recently and then take, uh, and I had to take 80 over and uh, exaggerating. Um, so if you get on those, you know, when two lanes go to one lane, and so what ends up happening, only one lane at a time. So let's say you are the Jews, okay, and you're the Gentiles. What it says, what God did at some point, how about a stop sign? You're not going anywhere. It's intended. So, Whatever God is saying, it's not going to be understandable and it's not going to be able to provide a basis of belief that's going to allow you to go anywhere spiritually. Now, you guys are the Gentiles. You ever been in a road like that? You're doing that? You know, waving these people forward and you guys are, you know, you go, you know, and he's waving. But it says this was intended. Stop. Come on. Until and God only knows the full number of the Gentiles has come in, what he says is going to be a flip. I don't know what it's going to look like. I really would like to see it. When God talks to his chosen people again, and he goes, stop. Come on. Come on. And I'll tell you what. I don't know what this is going to look like. I, I don't know. We don't have a lot of details. You're going to find people who have been stuck in place for thousands of years, understanding at some point, he never abandoned us. God doesn't abandon people that he calls. That's what it says. God's call is irrevocable. Do you know what irrevocable means? Not to be repented of. That's literally what it means. God called his chosen people the Jews. And he's not saying, I'm so disappointed in you. Sent my son, you didn't even believe in him. I'm done. Washing my hands of the Jews. I repent of even choosing you as my people. God never does anything like that. For the time being, there's going to be a time. Stop. It's going to be your turn. It's going to be the Jews' turn. Um, It says, and so all Israel will be saved. Hey, Mike, is Judas going to be in heaven? 
I don't know. I don't know. All Israel, every Israelite? I don't know. I don't think so. No, can't be. What I do know, a very small percentage of Israel believed in Jesus. We know some did because they were the, oh, yeah, the guys in the north, right? And Judas were a little bit in the south, but not many from the south. They were Jews. And so, but only a portion of Israel believed. When it says all Israel, it's, it's, you know, let me tell you what it's saying, we're all Israel. Hope I go the right direction. It's going to be people here and here, all Israel, north and south, are going to believe. It's going to be a national thing. Um, God hasn't given up on the Jews. Their rejection of Jesus was purposed. It says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. As far as the gospel is concerned, the Jews aren't going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're not supposed to. Most are. But listen to what it says. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, you're loved on account of the patriarchs. God doesn't forget Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God doesn't forget people he cultivates. You know what I'm really, I'm really glad about that, that God doesn't accept somebody, then kind of say, well, you're not really working out. God doesn't do that. He who began a good work brings it to completion. God's really good at finishing what he starts. How many of you are obsessive-compulsive about finishing what you start? Come on, get your hands up. Some of you, God is that to the nth degree. He does not start something and leave it undone. And I'm really glad for that, because I'm undone. I'm unprocessed, but I'm going to be finished, because God does not wash his hands of a thing he starts. And he's starting something in you. And you can trust that he'll finish it. Why? Because that's what he's like. People aren't disposable to God. He will never say, I wish I never got broiled up with you. I wish I never got tied up with you. That's the way he is. God hasn't given up on the Jews. His gifts and his call are irrevocable. It says God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Let me tell you what it means. Disobedience is disobedience based on disbelief. It's a person who feels, I have no right to be able to believe that God will do anything but cast me away. That's what, it's a disobedience based in disbelief. It says, God has snared all men in disbelief. Here's what it says. Imagine, let's go fishing in the pond. Let's go fishing. And so you take one of those nets, you, you know, the circular nets, you throw it out. And what, the way those nets work is they catch fish in there. So we're going to catch all kinds of pickerel and northerns and yeah, carp and <laughs> bullheads. And, okay, we're not going to catch pickerels and northerns. Okay. So anyways, what's going to happen when that net, it encloses, and can the fish get out? It's snared. What God does to people snares everybody. The whole world in the net of disbelief. So you know what that means? 
everyone at some level believes God really can't have anything to do with me. God can't have anything to do with me because look at how he's treated me. Or look at the things that I have to deal with. All of us have a basis of disbelief because you know what? We have character issues. We have character issues. They might not have manifested themselves like Judas did, but we have character issues. We have cultural issues. All of us believe at some point that we lie outside of God's favor, which is to say all of us are snared in that net. And why would God snare you in a net? So that when he reaches into your life to take hold of you, you understand it's because of his mercy not because you are doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. Do you understand if it's based on how sparkling you are, then it's not the mercy of God that brings you to be with him. It's that you've deserved it some way. I've talked about this illustration. There's two kinds of bankruptcy. There's chapter 7 and chapter 11. Chapter 7 bankruptcy is the bankruptcy you declare when you can't be solvent as a corporation anymore. It's just never going to work. You need permanent protection from your creditors. That's chapter 7. Chapter 11 is temporary protection from creditors. You just need some time to reorganize and to become profitable once again, and then you'll deal with your debts. What Biblically, it says we receive chapter 7 spiritual protection. But you know what ends up happening? We start to learn a few things. And we start to feel pretty good about the investment that you made in me. You know, I'm kind of working out pretty good, especially when you look at him. We start to compare ourselves with one another. Believing that we're better than or worse than, rather than understanding all of us at some level understand that we can't be brought in to God on the basis of what we do and don't do. Amen? That's the way it works. We're all snared. God does that on purpose. They might get lost. There's questions here. There's questions. This much is clear, though. When the questions are answered on the far side, we hang in there faith-wise, understanding that Jesus came, we'll celebrate communion, that he comes in order to open the doors of heaven to people snared in the nets of disbelief, based disobedience. When we look at, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things when we understand what the table means? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that you could come in and have the opportunity to have eternal life. Come on, come on. Believe him. There will come a time when he'll say stop. And then we'll get the chance to see, hopefully, across the aisle at our older brother's Streaming into the kingdom. This is what Paul said when he saw this whole thing. Last part of Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. I'll tell you what. I'm going to, I'll make this prediction. You check in with me. We're on the far side of heaven. What we're going to say to one another. Oh. When we see the way God works all this stuff out, all the depths, 
of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. When we see the way God does things and how he does things, we're going to go and we get to be with him forever. Jesus gave us a couple things to do as ordinances of those who would be his children. Communion is one of them. We're going to experience that in just a little bit. Baptism is another one. Um, there was a lot of stigma attached with baptism at the time. If you were especially baptized in the southern part of Israel, can you imagine what would have happened? It was So we don't have, and even in the north, we don't have quite the stigma today. When there's baptism, people smile. In those days, some people would be smiling, but other people would be checking. And again, to become a Christian was to become a criminal in Israel. And so your name would be given over and you might find yourself in serious trouble. That's why in that day, being baptized was something that you went, you dibble the gulp. And that's not to say we still observe baptism today. It doesn't have quite the stigma, yet it's still something that we do. I'm going to ask Sammy to come up. Sammy, come on up. Sammy White is going to come up and uh, wants to be baptized. He wanted to be baptized a couple weeks ago, Sammy, right? But yet he got a he got a cold, and so today is the day that he does. So Sammy, come on up. I'm going to just ask Sammy very briefly. Uh, we'll do it afterwards. We'll do it the way we did before, and um, we'll go out and uh, we'll go right out right next to the church. But Sammy, just tell us briefly, Sammy. I'm going to give you this and speak into this. Why are you? Why are you getting baptized? I put this right up to you. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I uh, like to say that I'm, I'm glad to be here in God's house uh, mm. this morning. And uh, it's a wonderful thing uh, to be baptized. And... Uh, I feel that uh, I have a, a wonderful pastor to do that job for me. And uh, uh, my reason is for me to be baptized is to be in the house of the Lord and in his family as he can bring us many wonderful and gracious directions to go through. Hmm. So, as I go through this baptism, I'm not a man of words or speaking and everything. <laughs> but, I will say, <laughs> I am excited about it and God is with me at this baptism and I thank y'all for letting me be in the family huh. of y'all's church. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, another ordinance was the Lord's Supper, and it gives us an opportunity as we take the bread and the cup to think about God's commitments to us. And, um, so if we're going to have music, grab the cup and the juice. Again, what God proclaimed, opening the door into eternal existence by sending His Son.
and, and you can trust him. You're going to want to spend eternity with him. You really are. God is so wise and so good. Well, think about that. He didn't spare his own son, but deliver him up for us all. How will he not all, but with him freely give us all things? Take the bread and the juice sometime during, take the juice and the bread and eat in remembrance of him. Father, thank you for salvation and for the way you have conceived of it, your commitment to it, the fact that you will finish it. You don't start anything, you don't finish. I pray that you would continue to allow us to know you and remain in you and reflect you to others. Thank you for things you've given us to help you remember. The Lord's Supper helps us remember the new covenant, the cross, and you inaugurating the new covenant at the cross and baptism identifies our desire to involve and to be identified with your family. Thanks for Sammy. The chance we get now to witness him making this commitment.